Clear Channel's iHeartRadio. Welcome to the Jane Wilkins Michael Show. Better than before. An hour of beauty, health, fitness, and lifestyle advice from renowned columnist and author Jane Wilkins Michael and her guest, top experts in their fields. Join Jane's campaign to become better than before. Now, here she is, Jane Wilkins Michael. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Jane Wilkins Michael Show, Better Than Before, on iHeartRadio Talk. I'm Jane. I'm coming to you live from New York City. I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Well, beautiful day here in New York City, and to make it even more beautiful than before, here she is, my pulchritudinous producer, Lori Houston. Hi, Lori. (laughs) Hi, Jane. (laughs) That's what you call an alliteration. (laughs) And here's another one. We have a sensational show today. Our first guest, Mike. Michael O'Neill is the founder and CEO of a truly extraordinary healthcare company, Get Well Network, and his personal story is both heartwarming and inspirational. And we'll talk all about that in just a moment. And I just want to add that after the break, we're going to meet Jacqueline London, who is the Good Housekeeping Magazine's nutrition director. Uh, We have come to rely on the advice of Good Housekeeping uh, for many, many years, a century, I believe, and Jacqueline will share some of that advice with us today. But first, it is my great pleasure to introduce Michael O'Neill. Let me tell you a little bit about him before we bring him on so you will be as impressed as I was. He was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma at the age of 28 while finishing his JD MBA at Georgetown Law. After aggressive surgery and chemo, he did survive cancer. But apart from the great care he received, he realized that he and patients like him were not empowered to understand or take control of the care process. Process. And I do believe that we all should take a more active role in our own health care. Michael thought that too, but the difference is while many of us just think about it, he actually took action and developed the concept of interactive patient care, which is based on the premise that more engaged patients have better outcomes. But he didn't stop there. He then built a healthcare technology company around that concept, Get Well Network, of which he is the founder and CEO. And the company has grown from a startup to an industry leader with more than 300 employees nationwide. And just as of last year, more than 50 million, million patient interactions. And it is continually growing. Michael O'Neill comes to us today from Bethesda, Maryland, the company's headquarters. Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much for being with us. It is an honor and a privilege to have you on the show. Thank you. It's great to be with you all today. Thank you. Now, Michael, before we talk about the current state of healthcare, and all I can say is thank goodness for the Get Well Network, can you give us a brief overview of what your company does? Sure. So uh, we have developed an, an interactive patient care model, if you will, and it really is a, a kind of clinical transformation model that really says how can we begin to deliver care um, differently so that patients are truly at the center of the care process and thus in control, empowered, engaged, and educated to be more active participants you know, in the care they're receiving and really begin to kind of self-manage. Now, we happen to do that through a combination of change management work that we do inside of some of the country's um, largest hospitals and health systems, and we actually have built a consumer-facing patient engagement platform. So whether a get-well patient in a hospital bed or they're on their mobile phone 
or they happen to be um, watching TV, we actually can leverage those ubiquitous technologies to really help put a personalized digital platform in the patient's hands so they can really take control of their own care. That's that's actually fascinating, and we're going to talk about that in more detail in just a minute. But, you know, going back to healthcare, Michael, um, many doctors today, as you know, with managed healthcare, they have about 15 minutes to devote to most patients, which leaves them saying, especially after a devastating diagnosis, you know, what do I do now? And healthcare is more about, I think, paying for healthcare rather than caring for the patient. Um, but you're the patient advocate. You care. Um, but can you share with us a little bit your perspective on the current state of healthcare? Yeah, you know, I, I tell you, I, I think there's a really um, broad and thickening uh, silver lining in what is often seen as as the dark cloud of the healthcare industry in general, and how much it costs the country and that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, the, those those broadening silver linings are really kind of threefold. One of them is clinicians have gotten into healthcare because they want to make a difference, and we have an incredibly passionate, frustrated, yet passionate, intelligent, committed workforce that simply wants to deliver great care for their patients. They care. And so um, and that's the first thing we kind of start with. You know, I think the second thing happening in healthcare, you know, is there is fundamental change in consumerism, right? And so in every other facet of our lives as consumers, we have access to amazing information, uh, amazing empowerment, amazing decision-making tools, amazing tools available to us to make great decisions in the world, and now we're and now as consumers, we're demanding them come into healthcare. And the third thing we had really is 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 the catalyst of the regulatory environment that really has shifted um, the care from being fee based to value based. And so now, when when providers are reimbursed by the value and the outcomes of the care versus the volume of the care they receive, we have these three factors coming together to create a really transformational time. Um, look, change is hard. So we're in a very tumultuous, uh, difficult, in some cases, polarizing time in healthcare. But wow, do we have three factors working together to force dramatic change. And that really creates, frankly, a lot of excitement for folks like me who have been, you know, kind of, I guess, in the thick of the war, you know, of being a mm-hmm. patient in a life defining moment and now being on the professional side of saying, hey, what can we do to help make it better for the next person is an exciting time for sure. Yeah, well, I take my health care in my own hands. Being a little bit of a hypochondriac, as Lori knows, I just check either WebMD or the hypochondriac's <laughs> handbook. And neither of those give me accurate advice because it always jumps to the actual worst thing that I could possibly yes, have. Does. Then it works its way down. But, <laughs> you know, there was actually an interesting story in the paper today. And it's, well, got to keep your doctor from killing you. Actually, that was the lead. And, you know, um, and I knew right then and there that I was a hypochondriac for a reason, you know, but the one who never goes to doctors. Um, for this for this reason. Um, but the gist of the story was that medical errors, including surgery, snafus, misdiagnosis, incorrect prescriptions, you know, to name a few, can be avoided uh, by taking control of your own health, which is exactly what you are empowering patients to do. Yeah, you know, th- th- this will sound exceptionally mundane, but I think a very helpful visual for folks. So so picture you're a patient in a get-well bed in the hospital, and picture the fact that we know from your medical record that you are 45 years old, you're coming in for surgery um, tomorrow, and because of that, and you're on, you're on pain medications, because of those factors, you happen to be at risk for fall. And now, believe it or not, there are tons, thousands of falls inside of hospitals every year where a patient gets injured from that fall, and then there's a massive cost and risk for the incremental care, you know, while you're still in that hospital. Now, in the Get Well Network bed, for example, 
um, because we know this information, we literally are going to interrupt a rerun of Oprah Winfrey to tell you, hey, Michael, um, uh, we're thrilled we're here to take care of you today. Uh, we want you to make sure you understand that you're at risk for fall you know, while you're actually with us. Please review this information and make sure we test you on comprehension, you understand it. And then we're going to remind you, you know, through our communication protocols every three hours that, that you're at risk for fall. And so th there, there's this opportunity that we actually have at the point of care to begin to truly bring patients themselves into the very delivery and reception of that care so that they're in control of being communicated to in a very personalized, dynamic way. And the care actually gets safer uh, and higher quality when we actually do involve them. Yeah, and it's kind of scary to go to a hospital because you don't know. There's a chalkboard and they say, well, your nurse is such and such, gets raised and they come in and you don't really know. I mean, you're sort of not feeling well to begin with, obviously. And, and yet on top of it, you're, you're very lost. And again, there's so many patients who, who say, you know, what, what do I do? What do I do? And this, this really answers that because it's very friendly. Um, and also I would think that the families, um, the family gets involved, the caregivers, no? Are they, do they become part of what you offer? Yeah, absolutely. The whole, the whole goal of this is how rapidly can we build an effective patient, you know, um, the moment we actually have an opportunity and a privilege uh, to be a part of their care. And part of building a great patient is understanding right away what is the care team they have around them. We might have uh, three days of having the talented, skilled, and precious hands of physicians and nurses taking care of us, but the real care, as we all know, oftentimes happens the moment we actually leave you know, uh, that facility and we enter back into our worlds, what is the ecosystem that we can help build around that patient to make sure they really can self-manage and not end up back in an emergency department, you know, within 30 days or within six months or what have you. And so the family members in our world are a very important part. Um, this is really a, a key part of the um, equation. Now, how did, do they get this at home too, or is it just um, in it, the... So they can no, they, also continue with this. And yeah, they, 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 they can. And you, and you made a comment earlier, oftentimes when you have a, a self-perceived ailment, you begin to wildly surf um, the Internet, you know, for information about what that might be. And, and what we have found is there's a really uh, big opportunity we have to understand from the provider standpoint uh, what the patient's going through, what the evidence-based clinical protocol should be, and then make sure we give information to that patient that, frankly, can be given to them in a, in a clinic, at, at a doctor's office, it can be given to them in a hospital, and it can be actually given to them at home. And all the information should be consistent so they're actually not confusing themselves right around their plan of care. And so um, our solutions really kind of live, I want to say, throughout the patient journey um, and, and really can be quite dynamic in that respect. And it's the right information, too, unlike my findings, which are not always accurate. Right. <laughs> now, can you lie about your age on your forms? I tell you, I did. I had my hip replaced, and, and I wrote down, I was speaking of like 45, right? And and my husband goes, you can't do that. I mean, you're not supposed to. I said, well, <laughs> you know, you have like anesthesia and stuff. So I think you keep us honest also, do you not? <laughs> um so, I mean, how do the um, doctors, um, you know, how do they benefit from using it as well? The patient is more relaxed when they come in to the hospital? Yeah, of course. You know, we are, we are measuring, you know, all of this. And what we are finding is um, a more active, engaged, involved patient is a better patient. And uh, we're measuring like crazy uh, the better outcomes. And those outcomes happen to typically take place in three areas. One is... Um, more active patients are happier patients, and um, they, they, they perceive the care to be better when they're involved. 
And whenever we have a patient that we can help feel empowered in their care process and feel comfortable asking their physician or nurse um, the right questions and not feel stupid or not feel um, like they're going to embarrass themselves, it's amazing how much better the care gets and how much better they feel about it. You know, that's the first thing. The second thing is we're finding the care to be more safe. When patients are more involved, we see less falls, we see lower readmissions, we said we see less infections happening in hospital because people are washing their hands more. You know, and the third thing is the care gets more efficient. You know, you can imagine if a patient and family is involved from the moment they get to a hospital, if they're involved in how can they actually get home effectively, then believe me, the care gets more efficient because they actually want to be back in their own environment. So we're actually measuring and seeing impact of this really in three ways, and it certainly helps the clinician when the patient and family are really actively involved in that care process throughout. Yeah. Now, let's say you go into the hospital. How do you ask for your network? I mean, how, do you, how does that process work? Your, if you check in, question. what do they do? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, uh, so Get Well Network is tied into what the hospital has, what they call an admissions, discharge, and transfer system. And it's a big mouthful just to say, we know what patients in what bed at what time. We know what language they speak, what medications they're on, what procedures they're having. And we use that data to really kind of um, – pull up, if you will, proactively, either on their iPad, on their phone, or on their television in their patient room to really say, hey, welcome, Michael, uh, to the hospital. Uh, we know you're here from the Hodgkin's lymphoma. Here's some important information about your chemotherapy we actually want you to review before you see a physician. And so we literally, um, uh, we know who's there, and so we really can proactively um, reach out and push content and also then pull a patient in through some really neat kind of activation. Everything from, do you want to watch a movie to relax? to, hey, how about ordering your food through Get Well Network through um, to the point where, hey, why don't you give us some feedback about your doctor? We'd love to know kind of how it is he or she is taking care of you today. And so, so we have an ability through the platform to uh, know exactly what patients wear and who they are and then leverage that data to really kind of provide feedback. Now, the last thing I'll tell you is you look over 92% of Get Well Network patients interact with our platform during their care. And so you can imagine the power in the data asset, you know, that we're beginning to collect to really understand um, people at the individual level and also kind of what the ecosystem kind of looks like. It's a really powerful way for us to deliver better care. So let's say I checked in. I mean, just um, hypothetically, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> for, you don't want hypochondriacs. Do not go to hospitals. You should see what the, I put my doctor through when I had my hip replaced. I must have called it. They finally took all the phones off the hook at Langone Medical, NYU, because they didn't want to hear from me. Because I'd say, doctor, have you ever lost a patient on the table? No. Did you ever have ephemeral, like, hemorrhage? No. And I said, they said, look, just get in here. We're fine. We're fine. You're the one who needs the surgery. So, so I would come in, right? And I'd see the, the, the screen and it'd say, welcome, Jane. And it says what I'm having done. So it has all of the, uh, do you have to, do you have to be technical? Because you would have, you would kind of lose me a little bit. <laughs> I just yeah. have trouble turning on my computer. <laughs> yeah, no, this, this is designed, you know, um, hey, having, when you have 50 million interactions at the point of care in a year, you'd be overwhelmed with the amount of science, right? That goes into, hey, if, if this is an 84 year old hip replacement patient, how are they going to interact differently, you know, with their healthcare journey than a 14-year-old asthma patient, you know? And so that's kind of the information and the expertise and the science that the organization has gained over 15 years. And so for us, if, if you know how to use your television at home or use your iPad, you know, um, or your phone, 
uh, you're able to use GetWell Networking. So there's a lot of um, a combination of art and science. It's everything from colors to fonts to content to gamification uh, to all the things that we're used to um, as we use Uber and we actually order Starbucks online before we get there and all these things that we do in our lives. Um, GetWell Network kind of bringing them into the care environment. Yeah, well, my husband sets up the television. It's like mission control. And when he's away, I, I have, you know, I don't know how to turn it on. So I'm sure this is a lot easier. <laughs> I'm used to yes. calling every five minutes. What do you do? Just press the red button, the green button, the blue button, then press rewind. And then, so I'm, I'm completely lost. But I, I'm sure I, I'll be able to, uh, I would be able to, or patients like me would be able to handle your system. Now, you've yeah. also seen, I'm sure, advances in the telehealth and, and, and wearable devices. Um, do you see this as a, as a next game changer, as it were, for technology? in the healthcare space? You know, um, uh, we, 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 we do. Uh, we do see it as a game changer. We do think um, there's a lot of work to be done uh, to really um, kind of operationalize this from a provider standpoint, right? And so it's one thing for, you know, 10,000 heart failure patients to be, you know, wearing Fitbits and all different kind of wearables and all. It's another thing to make sure that the processes and the systems are set up so that when there is a variance in some of those patients, where does that data go and is the infrastructure in place to make sure that we can then respond, you know, to those patients effectively? And so um, this is kind of where healthcare, as, you, as everyone knows, it's, it's complicated. You know, um, there's a lot of people involved in the care team and there's really a lot of work to be done on the change management side and the workflow side. The technology oftentimes, frankly, is the easy part. It's really about what do we do with the technology to make sure that all the folks that are required to provide the very best care for the individual patient are kind of tied into that. And that's where I think there's a lot of work to be done. And we're still a couple of years away from that really kind of, um, you know, uh, coming into true action. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Now, one, one question, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit. We have the nutrition director for Good Housekeeping on the next uh, the next segment. Uh, do you get into the nutrition part, you know, the really um, the good follow-up care? I know that um, I hope never, but my husband recently had a heart attack. I wish somebody would have put on the screen, eat more leafy greens. I think he would yeah. sooner starve to death than eat anything that tastes remotely like escarole. But um, do you work with the patient there on your uh, network to improve their nutrition, their exercise, their quality of life care? We, we, we do. A lot of what we do at Get Well Network is um, as part of a discharge program, if you will. If you happen to be a heart failure patient, you know, we're taking them through a, literally a, a four-stage program to really help them understand and then kind of self-manage their own care. And then as part of that kind of program, whether they might be in a hospital, we're also enrolling them into my Get Well Network, right? And, and then all of a sudden now as they get home, we're really kind of having them track along and follow and really choose, you know, what is your capacity to engage in your own self-care? Um, what is your motivation level? Like, can you commit to two days of doing it? Can you commit to two weeks? And we really begin to kind of walk them through um, a real kind of self-actualization plan around really kind of setting their own goals and, and being a part of that. And diet certainly is a part of that as well as exercise and other things that we would go do. So you're also a support system. You know, it's very hard to do this alone. And I think to have the support of, of, of your network is, is really important. And, and so, um, I mean, it's incredible that you've come up with it. I'm, I'm really, <laughs> I'm, very, I'm very impressed and how it has grown over the years. It just shows the need for, for this. Um, now, tell us, um, the, the Get Well Network itself, can anybody um, – go on it is this um they just type in getwellnetwork.com or great 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 question no you know so the way that this works is um is we decided long ago that um we weren't going to be 
yet another one of the 140,000 you know iPhone apps for care. And we really thought that actually working um, with providers on behalf of patients was going to be the way to really drive um, systematic and enduring change, you know, an improvement for patients. And so all of our work is really done uh, through the healthcare organizations we work with, right? And so we work with, you know, 350 or so organizations across the country and in the Middle East as well. Um, and so if you happen to be a patient, for example, um, you know, uh, in a get well network hospital organization, that's when kind of as part of your care, you might be prescribed a get well network pathway, you know, or, or you'd see get well network come up on your television, your room or what have you. And that's how people actually would access it. Yeah, well, that's good. That's very good to know. And you, you being an actual patient, I mean, you survived uh, cancer, which is not an easy journey by any means. And um, wow, <laughs> I must say that was that was quite. And I was reading your 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 history, and you've had uh, to 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 get it so young as well. Um, yeah, you know, you know, uh, there's so many of us who are part of. I guess I'd call it the cancer club that have a very, um, I think, similar experience, and that is there's really, a, uh, believe it or not, there's one of gratitude, you know, gratitude for the opportunity uh, really to understand the preciousness of life and secondly to really understand um, how valuable our time is and how we might actually spend it uh, to make it better for the next person. And so I, I guess I would tell you I, I spend um, so much of my spiritual space in one of uh, gratitude for the opportunity to be exposed uh, at a young age uh, to how important, um, frankly, uh, life is. More importantly, how important we can be, you know, in in um, in spending uh, our precious days and months and years uh, doing something productive and constructive. And so, so, so when we live kind of in that space, it's a really powerful one to live in. It certainly gives you a reason to uh, stay up late and get up early. And I feel like I haven't worked a day in my life in 15 years. It's really pretty, um, pretty amazing. Uh, you know, I, I remember, Michael, I'll, I'll never forget one uh, cancer survivor telling me, and I, I interviewed her for research for uh, my book, which Long Live You, which I, I had sent you a copy. Um, she told me that for her, cancer was a blessing, right? And I said, how could that possibly be? And she said, it taught me that our greatest trials can be the greatest opportunities for growing and finding purpose. And when I talk about that, I said, you know, that is the way to turn a mess into a message and is exactly what you have done through your personal experience as well and what you continue to do. So before you leave us, Michael, and thank you so much for your time, um, any tips that you can leave our listeners with about their... Yeah. Yeah, sure. I, just, just one main thing that I think uh, we have learned and we're finding so powerful as we meet more and more people through our work, and that is the, the question uh, to ask is um, not what's ailing me, but uh, what do I want my health for? And the clarity with which we can really kind of articulate, you know, what our life ambitions are, and then we can attack our health, you know, through our life goals it is incredible how much more control and empowerment and engagement that we will take, you know, when our healthcare journey is thought about in that context and not um, my diabetes or my A1C3, re you know, um, reading or what have you. And that's the one thing I would say is really kind of um, the more we can um, be selfish about kind of how we want to define our lives and our ambitions and wildest dreams and think about our health in that context, it's a really great catalyst for being great about our health and taking control. 
Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us, and thank you for being with us. And again, where can we start the process? Just go on to getwellnetwork.com, and you'll take us from there. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. It's a real privilege. Oh, thank you so much. Stay with us. When we return, we'll be speaking with Good Housekeeping's Jackie London. You are listening to The Jane Wilkins Michael Show on iHeartRadio Talk. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As listeners of our iHeartRadio Talk Show know, Jane Wilkins Michael is one of the foremost experts on all things health, beauty, and fitness. Jane has just released her highly anticipated new book, Long Live You, a step-by-step plan to look and feel better than before. In it, she shares a collection of advice, tips, and personal antidotes along with lifestyle suggestions from some of the world's top beauty, health, and fitness experts, many of whom have been interviewed on this show. Are you hoping to make positive health decisions, improve your emotional well-being, establish a support system, give something back to your community and the world? Jane's new book will help you look years younger and also live a longer, healthier, happier, and more beautiful life. You can order Long Live You, your step-by-step plan to look and feel better than before at your local bookstore or at Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com, where it's available for delivery or as an ebook. Or go to Jane's website, janewilkinsmichael.com. Now, back to the Jane Wilkins Michael Show. Want to know where you can hear Jane Wilkins Michael's show better than before? Well, that's easy. You can tune in to Jane via Clear Channel's iHeartRadio, Spreaker, Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, and at bmajor.org. Now, back to Jane Wilkins-Michael and Better Than Before. Welcome back, everyone. We're on the air live. I'm coming to you from New York City. You're listening to the Jane Wilkins-Michael Show on iHeartRadio Talk. I'm here with Lori, as always. And now I'd like to introduce you all to Jacqueline London. Let me tell you a little bit about Jackie before I bring her on. In a world that's always telling you what you should buy, what you should eat, and how you should feel, it's hard to keep everything straight. So our next guest takes all the guesswork out of it. As the Nutrition Director of the Good Housekeeping Institute, which is the foremost consumer product evaluation laboratory in the world, she is responsible for the creation, execution, and oversight of all the magazine's nutrition-related content across media platforms, including diet, meal planning, nutrition, health news, product reviews, TV segments, to name just a few. And here I have to worry, all I have to worry about is making dinner for my husband. So (laughs) welcome, Jackie. It's such a pleasure to to have you here. My God, I'm exhausted just hearing what you do every day. I just have to know, should I buy kale or spinach? Not kale, but sometimes spinach. Um, and I have to tell you, Lori, I first met Jackie's parents at a, at a party, and they spoke so highly of her. But parents tend to do that, at least you know one would hope. But everything they said about her is true. You are such a sweetheart and so successful at everything you've done and, and do now. That is so sweet. I'm definitely coming here. I'm going to just call you all the time then, Jane. Oh, that's fine. We're here. <laughs> we, we, we are. Thank you for having me. Um, now let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the Good Housekeeping Institute. You know, the magazine and the institute, they, it's been around, I think, for um, 100 years. Um, oh, yes. We're celebrating our 130th anniversary this year, in fact. Oh, my goodness. That's even a little bit before my time. Even though my daughter once asked when she was studying about <laughs> dinosaurs in kindergarten, she said, Mom, do you, you remember them, right? I said, no, nah, it's just you know, oh. a, couple, a couple of years before I remember that kind of stuff. So Uh-oh. tell us 
what goes on in the Institute. What, what do you do on a day-to-day basis for the Institute that sub- uh, subsequently goes into the magazine? Mm-hmm. So we are, so as you mentioned, we are a consumer products testing facility. So we are always looking at, uh, the, at the certain criteria that meet our standards for testing. And that goes across a number of different labs and platforms. So, you know, we do have our health and environmental beauty lab. We have, um, myself, I'm, I'm in charge of the nutrition lab. We also have a test kitchen here, consumer electronics, kitchen appliances, home appliances, textiles. Um, so we are always looking at what the latest science is when it comes to product testing. And then we are evaluating within our own specific areas as that relates to consumers. So for me, um, I am always on a, on a daily basis looking nonstop at consumer food products. Um, what's on the shelves, what's hitting market, what's coming out next, what are the latest food trends. And then as a registered dietitian, you know, I have some uh, I have some counseling background. So a lot of what I do is looking at how this relates and how we can apply what we're seeing both in the consumer market to real life, you know, to, to the average everyday consumer who is looking for simpler ways to be healthier. And that's certainly my overall message. Um, and, you know, having had some, some pretty extensive experience in clinical practice, I, I feel that what is, what is great about my job is being able to relate what is happening in the market to what I know people are looking for in real life. Yeah, you know, that's that's interesting, Jackie, because, you know, I think we're all, and we talk, you and I have talked about this, we're all so confused because we get so many mixed signals from so many sources and we're getting hit by all, you know, the internet and the newspapers and, and, and you yeah. know, like, yeah. in fact, just in the, in the uh, post today, they had something about... Um, uh, you know that the the food labeling. There was some story on a food labeling that an avocado may be deemed unhealthy because of mm-hmm. its fat content, but SpaghettiOs are okay because they, they has um, a, a calcium <laughs> added. Yeah, that's yep. confusing to people, is it not? It's beyond confusing, and you know, and that is always, of course, my my utmost my my the goal of of everything that I do at the end of the day is to make it less confusing is to kind of declutter what's happening um, in terms of the news and so so what we're seeing a lot of and where we're hearing that buzz is that the FDA is looking to reevaluate their claim on what healthy is so the FDA places nutrient content claims um, and that is part of their regulation so so they look at the content claims of food labels and then they set the guidelines for that and they regulate based on that. Um, I'm, I'm sure that you have heard of Kind Snacks, Kind Bars. Um, they're a company who recently, last year, was they had healthy on a food product that, you know, their, their products are made from all nuts and fruit um, for the most part. And so what had happened to, to their product is that they were called into question for, you know, for violating FDA regulation because they had put healthy on a food product that had more than, I believe it was three grams of saturated fat. Saturated fat, total fat and cholesterol and sodium are what the FDA regulates based on. Those are the nutritional criteria. So they regulate around those around those nutrients. They set a standard and if you violate as a food company and as Kind Snacks had, uh, their requirements for this, then you are considered to to be, they were told that, um, that they had to cease and desist essentially. So right. what we, so what is the fascinating piece of this really is that for 
for healthy foods, you know, now science is way beyond this. <laughs> so those those criteria were set back in the early 90s, and now we're we're seeing so much by way of clinical and epidemiological research that is is speaking to the fact that it's really about healthy fats, whole foods, plant-based eating, more fish, you know, and when we look at what foods the FDA would technically consider healthy versus what they wouldn't under that nutrient content claim, they don't match up, right? So that's right. why we are seeing now uh, this kind of this massive shift to make sure that we reevaluate what is actually going into the FDA's recommendations for things um, and healthy being one of them. Now, I, I personally am kind of averse to the term healthy because I think that it implies a little bit of a standard of, of perfection that we don't really need in our lives. <laughs> I think we should, we're better off thinking more about healthful and what promotes mm -hmm. a more healthful diet than we are about healthy versus unhealthy. No, that's very true. But also, can we trust the FDA? I mean, here they come out with, oh, saccharin's fine, perfect, aspartamine, fine, no problem. And then 10 years later, I mean, this happens time and time again. Uh-oh, mm -hmm. it was known to cause, you know, brain cancer in whatever they tested it on. So, you know, mm -hmm. you, I'm, you get a little wary of, of, of you know, th thinking if they really are telling us the right information and can we believe it? Sure, and that's definitely understandable. But one thing that we all have to keep in mind is that science is ever-evolving, right? And when it comes to nutrition science in particular, this is an area of research that is not only always developing, but is always, is always kind of playing catch-up because we do look at epidemiology instead of, instead of necessarily clinical trials all the time. And that's a limitation of nutrition science overall, right? Because it, it's very difficult to be able to say that if you think something's bad for someone, of course, at first do no harm. So if you think something might be bad, or if you think there might be a risk of of a health outcome that is negative along the way, then we can't do a clinical trial. So a lot of times, a lot of the nutrition science is looking at trends over time, and they're looking at, at cross-sectional analyses instead of really looking at these clinical trials in which a different variable is being introduced. Um, so, so we do have to keep in mind that the FDA, you know, all of us, they're doing the best that they can within the guidelines that they have. It's just that we're, we're always playing scientific catch-up game um, because we're, this is an ever-developing field, and we do want to make sure that we are looking into every possible area of research before changing recommendations and guidelines. And, and we always see that with the USDA as well, with the dietary guidelines. And uh, often in the media, this gets reported as, as mixed messaging, or it gets reported as, um, oh, nutritionists, what do they know? <laughs> They're always changing their yeah, mind, change, right? Yeah, but yeah. it's actually, of course, we, we do have to keep in mind that it's, it's very scientific, and because of the scientific methods and the processes and the long-term analyses, we, we are often delayed in reporting evidence that we may as well have known all along. Yeah, and another thing that, you know, speaking of, of um, trends, I don't know if this would even fall under the trend category, but I guess labeling, GMOs, which I think nobody truly mm -hmm. understands, is that um, yeah. something that is now going to happen with food that we're not going to even know about, or will they put that on the label, or exactly what is it to explain? Because I don't yeah. think most people know what GMOs are. Right. So this is genetically modified organisms are GMOs. Now, one thing that people often get confused about is that GMOs, a non-GMO food product, 
will 100% of the time be covered by the USDA organic label or seal um, that is present on food labels. So if a product is, uh, is USDA organic, certified USDA organic, it is non-GMO by nature. So that's one area where I think there's been some confusion about what does it mean to be GMO versus not non-GMO because often we will see that we'll see USDA organic on a label but it's not necessarily presented to the consumer right off the bat or without you know having a little intel that that covers the non-GMO question. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is that when it comes to labeling laws, you know, there's been a lot of question as to whether or not there should be enforced GMO labeling on food products. And, and again, you know, that, that is, you are safely under that umbrella when it comes to the organic food question, um, because that will, because being a 100% organic food will cover it. But on the other hand, you know, there, there is, there are many people that are very, very um, vehemently opposed to any use of genetically modified organisms. And there is, there are also an, another camp that believes that these are perfectly safe. Now, where we net out on that in terms of scientific research, um, there, we still, the jury is still out effectively because, again, mm -hmm. we don't know for long-term health what the potential risks, the harm versus the, you know, the potential does the good outweigh the bad type of thing. We're not really sure yet. We can't, we can't safely find an outcome that would apply to all people, to all healthy individuals. So for now, I would say that the, the, more, the greatest focus that I would want people to, to look at instead of focusing on GMO is to, is to focus more on just eating more fruits and veggies because ultimately we do know, we do have all of the benefits there. We do have all of the research to support it, right? So, so that's where I would say in terms of where our focus should be right now, a lot of people get caught up in the GMO question and the organic question. And I think let's step back for a second and just talk more about plants. <laughs> yeah, plant -based, That's your beans, your plant, lentils, your chickpeas. Exactly, exactly. Plant-based diet is where uh, a, mm -hmm. a lot of people should be heading. And a lot of times, I know my husband just had a, a heart attack, well, not just, but and, and the doctor that he saw said, you know, you really should go to a plant-based diet. But it's very hard to... Um, you know, if you're used to eating like meat and chicken, you know, that, it's hard to say, okay, yeah. I'm going to go vegan, but you can sort of mix yeah, in yeah. with, you know, you can eat one one vegan meal or, you know, you can sort of alter your, your menu to include more beans, more. I give him so many beans. I swear he's just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> He's got what all the beans, beans. And avocado. You know, just this is one day I'm going to turn into a rug salesman. You know, that's all he eats is like the Mediterranean <laughs> diet. So um, let's talk a little bit. You know, you had mentioned organic. There's the Dirty Dozen, the Clean 15. Should should you be mm -hmm. looking for um, certain food is okay to eat that's not organic, or or should we look for organic oh, yeah. for everything? Um, well, this, you know, Jane, to, to the same point, I would say that this is where some is better than none. It should always be the mantra, um, especially when it comes to veggies, to fruits and veggies, whole grains, beans, lentils, chickpeas, all of the legumes that you mentioned, nuts. Those are all the most important foods to be eating. I would, my recommendation normally would be to say that when it comes to the meat, the fish, that's where you should be, you should be your strictest, right? That is where you should try and be your most regimented because both, it, it, the, the purpose has, is, 
is multifactorial, right? Like, so, so if you are going to cut back on how much meat you eat because you're only going to choose 100% USDA organic grass-fed beef, then you're going to spend less overall because you're going to spend more, hopefully, in smaller amounts, right? You'll buy less meat overall. Um, but you'll also cut back on the portion. So you do have this kind of added bonus of, of a budget concern, that helps to address a nutritional concern as well, because a lot of the things we hear all the time is that many people say, "I can't eat, I can't eat healthy because it's too expensive." And I just want to be clear that that is is absolutely not the case. In fact, some of the healthiest foods are the least expensive. When it comes to the produce, I think we do often overlook the canned, the fresh, the frozen that are available to us at all times. Um, the frozen veggies, the frozen fruit, that's where you you may want to go organic when you can on that, because some. Sometimes you'll get those out of season, um, but those are no. There's nothing less nutritious about a canned or frozen fruit or vegetable. It is, in fact, sometimes more nutritious because they will be flash frozen or they'll be canned in heat. Of course, canning takes heat, so so they actually lock in most of the nutrients right away and then preserve them. Um, so that is that's again where I I kind of bring it all back to the some versus none argument. Um, some fruits and veggies, whether they're organic or not, are are much more important for us and for staying healthy and for long-term risk of disease than, than the organic question at present. And I would think that they pick them when they're ripe, when they should be picked, the fruit and, and, the, exactly. and the vegetables, because you can get green, exactly. you know, because in ship, it, it, they turn, they ripen very quickly. So if you get green vegetables or green unripe fruit at the store, they're pretty hard. But if you get it canned or um, frozen, then they pick them at the time they should be picked. And as you said, they flash freeze. Exactly. Which, and actually, they taste exactly. a lot better these days, the frozen, the organic. Oh, yeah. It used to be oh, yeah. not very good, but now they taste good. So... Tell me, what is the difference when you see natural or organic on a label? Is it because I think that's confusing too? Mm-hmm. Well, natural is the completely unregulated term right now. So the FDA just closed on Monday their public comment period, um, which in which the public could submit a comment for the FDA to consider when when thinking about the reevaluation of of whether or not they should regulate the term natural at all. Um, when it comes to organic, that is a USDA organic is a third-party certification. So that is a regulated term. Um, so you do have to meet certain set of environmental criteria in order to be considered USDA organic. Um, and that would have to be done, again, by a third-party organization. So it does – there is quite – there's quite a difference, but to many consumers, there isn't a difference, which is exactly why, you know, it is it's certainly my stance that we should prohibit the use of the word natural on food labels, only, if only to kind of, you know, dull this, this buzz, this consumer confusion about it, because otherwise it seems to be a little bit misleading. And, and I also think that that's an area in which prices can be driven up, right? So if we were to regulate the term natural, we would probably start to see a very similar thing happen to what's happened to organic food, which is that prices do tend to to go up once you have this um, this perceived health claim on a food label. Yeah, and also what I, I've noticed, and, and I think when I always tell people, you know, read labels when you when you shop, for sure. And mm-hmm. if you can't pronounce it, don't buy it, except for quinoa, which, you know, <laughs> nobody can spell anyway. <laughs> but a lot of times you see natural flavorings, but that's not natural, is it? 
Well, not just flavorings will really depend. They really depends on the food product, and that's why this this does become a little bit more of a murky mm -hmm. topic. Anytime we talk about um, setting certain criteria for certain setting certain nutritional criteria rather for certain foods, it becomes a little bit murky and a little trickier because we find ourselves in this position of saying, well, what does X mean in Y product category, right? So um, I get that question a lot about, well, how much sugar should be in in a sweetened yogurt. Well, is it a Greek yogurt? Is it a regular yogurt? Is it low fat? Right? Because there's so many things that play a role in uh, in what in what food labeling requires of us and in how we should interpret certain ingredients in certain contexts. The one thing that I will say when it comes to, to natural and natural flavoring is that the greatest piece of this debate has to do with the fact that, um, that back to your point about GMOs, is that many people believe that, that to define the term natural is almost more theological than it really is anything else. Um, because actually, when you think about what natural really means, it's really what is usual or expected. That's one of the dictionary definitions of the word. Um, and and so for for many, that means that it's not that it has not been touched by any kind of chemical interaction, any type of human interaction. There are, for others, it means natural simply just means that it is what you expect it to be. And for many people, what they expect it to be is that a grapefruit is a grapefruit. Doesn't matter if it was a GMO grapefruit or not, right? So that's where the question becomes an extremely polarizing and an extremely heated topic. Um, and depending on who you're talking to, it it there's it's based on a different set of beliefs and personal values and belief systems that really influences how we use that word and, and how we attribute the word to certain types of food. Yeah. Now, Jackie, you spoke before you spoke of uh, beans earlier, and I noticed you had sent me some material that we could discuss on the show. And I noticed there was something yeah. about so 2016 being a year of the pulses. Now, I hesitate to admit, but for me, my pulse is something yeah. that I take like 85 times a day to make sure I'm not dead. <laughs> But I don't right, think that's right. what you Just met second. in the year of the pulses. No. <laughs> yeah. So the <laughs> the United Nations actually called 2016 the year of the pulse, which is the dry edible seed of uh, of legumes like lentils, beans, chickpeas, um, and dry peas. And this is uh, back to the plant based diet question. Is um, this is I'm personally a huge fan of this. I think that this that in general, as far as what it does, both from a sustainability standpoint and from a health standpoint, you know, these are some of the world's greatest, most delicious, healthful foods that are also super affordable and that you can do so many things with, right? So a lot of people don't know you can actually make brownies out of chickpeas using chickpea flour and they taste delicious, by the way. I can't I have to say that right away so that I make sure everyone knows that wow. I'm not just recommending eating, you know, chickpea brownies before before we attribute a terrible taste to them. But um but there's also, you know, we're seeing a lot of different food products catch on to this trend. So lentil chips, um, as I mentioned, the chickpea baked goods, black beans being used in crackers as well as chickpeas, as well as becoming a greater sort of star protein star of the show. Um, so where I love the kind of integration of some of the pulses into our current consumer marketplace is that I think that it does give us this great this great opportunity to really leverage the fact that you don't have to be a vegan. You don't have to be 100% vegetarian. You can still eat meat, but cut back on meat 
and cut back on some of the animal proteins just so that you can still feel satisfied and still get a feeling benefit from foods like pulses. Um, and what I also think is so fantastic and so amazing about these particular crops is that because this is the United Nations, because this is an international movement, you know, it really is it really is something to think about about different cultures, different types of cuisines and how we can play around with um with cuisines and, and certain dishes and spices and all how they play a role in influencing our personal taste and our uh sort of travel through travel through food. But how do you get – my question is always with the the, the issue of the beans and, and to eat, um, mm-hmm. a, you know, could cut back to a little bit of vegan, veganism in, in our day. How yeah. do you get the protein? Do you mix the beans with rice or is it enough just to eat the beans? So it's enough to just eat the beans. Um, we they're, they're, In the history of vegetarianism, beans and rice, they were it was considered a complete – protein to eat rice and beans together because they're both lacking in um, in one amino acid that would make them an incomplete protein, right? But now we see, we don't, we talk about that a lot less now because in, in the context of a day, in the context of the American diet, we don't need to actually physically eat those together at the same time. We just need to have a day in which we've eaten all of the amino acids, the uh, complete amino acid profile in order to make sure that we're getting adequate protein. And trust me when I say that the Americans are getting more than enough protein. <laughs> so we yeah, don't have to worry about that. on the protein. I think that's yep. the, um, but uh, you know, if you can't digest the legumes, is there an alternative that, because mm-hmm. some people have a problem with that? Yes. Well, the first thing I would say about about that particular question is that sometimes we have more of a problem not digesting uh, some of the other some some of the other more um, insoluble fibers like the the raw fruits and veggies. So instead, I would just say that most of the time, trying to just incorporate beans into your day or or pulses into your day at least once a day or one serving a day. And drinking enough, making sure that we drink enough water, that's where you see the easiest tolerance to these new foods, right? Because what happens to a lot of people is that I say something like, we should try eating more pulses. And then, you know, we do this thing as uh, as consumers do, which is to go out and buy lots of beans and eat all of them at once. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's where we see a lot of the intolerance problems, right? Um, it's less to do with the actual food. It's more to do with the amount. It's the dose makes the poison. So so just think about adding more pulses to your day once and, you know, if if you are currently eating zero, trying to get there once a week would be the best way to start. And again, it is directly related to how much water you drink based on how your your gut responds to all of this. So, so definitely at least eight glasses of water a day for everyone. Oh, that's yeah, because the whole uh, uh, theory of hydrating. I mean, some people think they can get water. Uh, by the way, as an aside, Lori, if I um, if I say I'm going to get my uh, get pulses, it means I'm going to get lunch. Not that I'm going to check again to see if I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's talking. About, I'm going to use that. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's for sure. Did Lori lives with me? The, <laughs> the, the hypochondriac part is beyond. It's uh, I don't. Know, that's another show. Come on, and we'll discuss that one. Um, but you know, there's a lot about soy and a lot about peanuts. Those are hard to digest. And soy, of course, with the estrogen that people are staying away from the soybeans. But is that you know a lot of hype, or is that true that some people um, should not be eating? Either that's of them? a lot of hype. 
Yeah, that's a lot of hype. So that started with a lot of research that points to soy protein isolate in the form, in pill form, so in dietary supplement form. And there's two specific types um, that are that were considered to be the most dangerous when in the, I would say it was really in the 90s that doctors began to recommend taking soy supplements to reduce risk of heart disease. Um, but of course, the the whole, you know, that, that entire theory is a little bit backwards because we don't want to take supplements to stay healthy. We want to eat food to stay healthy. Um, so it's really not, it's not about supplements. Supplements is where we run into problems. That's where we've seen the link to, to promoting estrogen, to promoting um, uh, cancer development and tumor growth. That's where we have the problems. When it comes to natural sources of soy, like edamame, like so, uh, the soybean, of course, um, tofu, miso, tempeh, that is when we see the benefit and the reduced risk, over t- certainly over time, of cancer, of especially these types of endocrine-related cancers. Um, and interestingly, to that, to that end, is that we also see a reduced risk of cancer, uh, of cancer relapse, of recurrence. So not only is it important to be eating soy foods during the lifespan, but should you be, you know, it, for cancer survivors, it's, I'm sorry, for cancer survivors, it's also extremely important. Yeah, that, that's interesting. The other thing is dairy. I mean, I'm, 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 everyone's trying to get me off of dairy that it's not good. And <laughs> I'm an utter failure, as I call myself, because I can't. I just oh, can't. No. Do not take the dairy away from me. Do anything else, just please not the dairy. Uh, and that is dairy <laughs> okay, or is that an allergen? Dairy or? is excellent. Dairy right. is excellent. It Thank is you. only for people. Yeah, you have my blessing on dairy. Thank you. <laughs> for That's what it's worth. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Closed. But, you know, with when it comes to lactose, which is the type of sugar that's found in, in dairy products, if you can't tolerate lactose, that's one thing, right? Because we don't want anyone to be eating foods that they can't tolerate. And, by the way, tolerance is not an allergy or intolerance is not an allergy. Intolerance means that you have a, have a reaction that is physical, that is related to, uh, to a gut, especially when it relates to, um, to lactose specifically, it's a gut reaction. So it is a, it is usually characterized by gas and bloating and abdominal pain and diarrhea, all unpleasant things that we don't want. So if that is happening to you, then by all means, you know, cut back on the dairy or try out an elimination diet in which for a period of time you would eliminate the dairy. Um, but but for the rest of us who can tolerate dairy, you know, we, we're only really asked to have about two to three servings a day. That's all that we really need in order to meet our needs. Um, and from sources like Greek yogurt, for example, is a perfect example of a source that is a higher concentration of protein than it is of sugar because of the straining process. So we are what we wind up with less lactose. It's also why cheese is often better tolerated by, by many people because we, there's less lactose in cheese, especially in the hard cheeses. Um, so it's really sometimes if you find that just drinking a glass of milk is too hard for you to tolerate, then that's one thing and completely understandable. And there's lots of alternatives to that. But I, I don't want to out, I, I wouldn't want to malign dairy products in general because we have seen so many, uh, so many studies that link to decreased risk of certain types of chronic disease. It's integral to the DASH diet, which is the, um, the, which is the diet that is for hypertension sufferers. Um, 
and it also has been linked to some uh, to reducing waist circumference in a lot of in the in a number of different cohorts. So it is important to remember that. Again, we hear flashy things, you know, and we're all eager for that magic pill, right, that will help us to be healthier, to lose weight. And, and so we tend to latch on to headlines like cut the dairy, right? But, um, but those are really, that's really not where most of the science is. I would say incorporating sources of low-fat dairy products into your diet is probably the best way to get a lot of nutrients that we otherwise might be missing. Can I just say publicly that I love you? <laughs> <laughs> I, my well, motto I love is cheese too. goes with everything. Everything. Oh, cheese, cheese goes, goes with, with everything. everything. That's it. It's uh, the it's cheese true. alone. They have songs about it. it just, there's nothing better than cheese. Well, Jackie, there's nothing you know, better than actually, cheese. Actually, I could true. talk to you forever. You have to come back. I have pages and pages of questions more to ask you, but unfortunately, absolutely, have, I can't believe we're out of time. I mean, I can go. I on know with, that but, went by so you fast. You are going to come true. back. We're going to continue. I have marked off where we left off. We haven't even talked about oh, juices, wonderful. and that's you know very. Oh, that's but my favorite if you topic. Give us <laughs> last. Oh, that's that's a whole different. That's a whole show in itself. What, just briefly, yeah, I know. good, bad. What do you think? Juices, raw juices. I'm okay. sorry. Are juices good or bad? Oh, no, no juice, never no juice. juice. Eat okay. the fruit, forget the juice. Eat the fruit, yeah. forget the juice. Bottom okay. line. So we, mm-hmm. we don't talk about that. We have all the other things to talk about. Um, so what would right. you leave us? Let's give one or two tips, just to take home tips for the listeners. What would you leave us with? Jackie London's tips. Okay. Number one, I would say the number one overall tip is to make veggies the star of the show with whatever you're eating, especially at lunch and dinner. So think about making your the basis of your lunch or dinner veggies be it soup right like a vegetable based soup a salad a stir fry a sandwich even can still be veggie based right we can still stuff in tons of veggies in there even a hamburger can stuff in tons of veggies in there as long as we start with that we will wind up displacing some of the calories and just generally taking in better quality nutrients overall so that's that's my number one tip and then my number two tip would be to to look So check labels, but really just keep in mind that when you're checking labels, you just want to look for a whole food, a recognizable food as the first ingredient. So sometimes I'll look at food products and it'll say like, um, you know, whey protein isolate as the first ingredient. And that's not, that's a nutrient. Sure, that's a real nutrient, but it's not a real food. So look for a whole food. Look for a banana or look for a potato as the first ingredient when you're choosing a food product. Oh, that's great. Great. Well, again, we have to have you back because we have just cracked the surface of everything (laughs) that I am going to ask you. So now I will have to say goodbye, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. Everyone, that's our show. Thank you again, Jackie London. Where can we find you? Uh, Goodhousekeeping.com. Where can we find all the advice? You can. You can also follow me. You can... uh get me on goodhousekeeping.com as well as in book um, and you can follow me on Twitter it's Jacqueline London RD terrific thank you again so much for being with us thank you Lori and thank you all for listening this is Jane Wilkins Michael I will see you next week until then be wise be well be better than before have a question for Jane and want to be on the next better than before show drop us a line via instant feedback at bmajor.org The Jane Wilkins Michael Show is brought to you by Express Scripts and is produced by Major Radio for Clear Channel's iHeartRadio and bmajor.org.